So today our reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to pay attention to where your mind goes when I ask it. What's the first thing or couple of things that you think of? You ready? How is your relationship with God? How is your relationship with God? How are you and him doing? Now this isn't an interactive thing, so I'm not gonna get you to share, but where did your mind go to look for an answer to that question? Was it a generally positive response? Oh yeah, I've had a good habit of prayer recently. I had a conversation about Jesus with one of my friends. I feel like I've been pretty sinless. Or was it a generally negative response? Man, I haven't touched my Bible in weeks. 
My emotions are all over the place. There's this sin that I keep falling into and I can't seem to stop. Or maybe you're like, dude, I don't even think God is real. Well, if that is you, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. But where did your mind go? How is your relationship with God? Where did you look for an answer to that question? Because how we answer that question, where our mind automatically goes, even subconsciously, reveals what we deem most important, where we place our confidence for our status before God, or to use the theological term, our assurance of salvation. And the question of where we look for confidence and assurance is the driving theme of our passage today. So hold on to those thoughts and responses to that initial question if you can, because we'll come back to it later. But for now, let's open our Bibles or handouts to Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Now, just for some context, in first century Philippi, the influence of Jewish tradition and culture was much stronger than for us today. And so what people were tempted to look to for assurance was much different to us, namely circumcision. Now we can understand from Paul's warning in verse two to watch out that there were a group of people, maybe Christian, maybe not, who were pushing the idea that to really be saved, to really be right before God, you had to be circumcised. That was the true marker of what it meant to be part of God's people. Now let's just hit pause real quick on the situation in Philippi and rewind briefly to the Old Testament just so we can all be on the same page about circumcision. What is it and why was it so important? Not assuming any prior knowledge, circumcision is the removal, the cutting off of the foreskin. And it's introduced in the Bible in Genesis chapter 17. From verse nine, God says to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you, through their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision is a reminder of God's covenant, his agreement with Abraham and Abraham's descendants and the promises he made to them promises to make them into a great nation, to bless the nations of the earth through them. And also way back in Genesis 3, a promise that one day a human would be born who would crush the head of the snake and defeat death and darkness. The the promises are to do with descendants and lineage. And since genitals are involved in the creation of descendants and lineage, it's one of the reasons the mark of God's promise was circumcision a physical, tangible reminder of God's rich and gracious promises and of your identity as a member of God's chosen people. So fast forward back to Philippi. It's understandable why certain people would hold circumcision in such high regard and even be putting it forward as a requirement for people who profess to follow Jesus and become a part of God's family. So what does Paul have to say about it? From verse 2, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. 
If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Circumcision has nothing to do with your assurance of salvation, says Paul. That's not where your confidence should be. If it was, says Paul, if anyone should have reason to be confident in their Jewish identity, it should be me. Here's my resume. Previous roles, Pharisee. Responsibilities, persecuting the church. Weaknesses, being too good at my job. The ultimate Hebrew, he says. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. If anyone should be able to put confidence in their circumcision, it's Paul. But those good things, those identity markers and covenant reminders, he throws away for the sake of knowing Christ. In verse 8, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Actually, garbage or, or rubbish here doesn't really do the tone justice. The word for garbage literally means human excrement. So an impassioned Paul says that compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus, these things are, insert your word of choice. Because through faith in Jesus, we receive righteousness from God, a right relationship with the creator of the universe and the giver of life, love, and goodness. And, verse 10, through knowing Christ, by becoming like him in death, we get to know the power of his resurrection, both now and into eternity. A glimpse of the new creation we experience in this life and the eternity of glory that awaits. And to the Philippians, Paul reminds them that their assurance of that reality is not through the removal of their foreskins, or even perfect obedience to the law, but through simple faith and trust in Jesus. It's easy to see why something like circumcision could have become the marker of assurance for people. Because at its core, it's something good. It's physical, tangible, quantifiable. And because it's so easy, so tempting to slip into that mindset, Paul is wanting to write to them, verse one, as a safeguard. To, to remind them of the truth of the gospel and give them guardrails to stop them from slipping. And while circumcision is probably not the false assurance that we're tempted to slip into, there are still plenty of things we might put our confidence in instead of Jesus. I want us to have a think about how this might play out practically in our lives today. What are some false assurances we might be tempted to look to? Or what if you feel like you have no assurance? And how should you understand this if you don't believe in Jesus at all? Well, think back to the question I asked at the start. How is your relationship with God? If you follow Jesus, the answer to that question should be, it's perfect. My faith in Jesus has given me perfect righteousness with God and my confidence is in him. That's where I place my assurance. Chances are that's not what you first thought when I asked the question. Certainly wouldn't have been my 
knee-jerk response. Our natural inclination is to look to things that are physical, tangible, and quantifiable. And while we can profess and believe that we're saved by faith, our assurance ebbs and flows with our emotions and behavior. Maybe you put your confidence in your quiet time. Oh, I know I'm right with God because I'm on a three-month streak with the Bible app and I listen to theology podcasts for fun. Or, I don't even remember the last time that I had a regular pattern of prayer. What kind of Christian doesn't pray? Maybe you put your confidence in your actions. I invited a friend to church and started regularly giving to St. Jude, so I'm feeling pretty good. Or, I just can't seem to stop looking at porn. Am I even saved? Do I even have the Holy Spirit? Maybe you put your confidence in your emotional response to Christian fellowship or the Sunday service. Oh, the energy last Sunday was so good. The sermon was exactly what I needed to hear and the music. Jacob was drumming and I could really feel the spirit at work. <laughs> or, I don't even want to be at church. I couldn't focus on the sermon and the music. Jacob was drumming and the whole mood was off. <laughs> it's important to understand that like circumcision for the ancient Israelites, prayer and scripture, a right way to live, and fellowship with believers are all good and God-given things. But they should never be the basis for our assurance of salvation. We shouldn't look to them for confidence of our status before God. Our assurance is in Christ and Christ alone. And compared to him, these good and wonderful things are what Paul would call a steaming pile of... You get the picture. On their own and in and of themselves, these things hold no value. But if through them we are reminded of the gospel, reassured of our righteousness in Christ and fueled in our desire to know him more, then they are good. They are valuable. Prayer, scripture, obedience to God, and Christian fellowship are a result of our salvation and remind us of our assurance and are good things to do for those reasons. If you're feeling far from God or spiritually dry at the moment, let me encourage you to do those things. Live out your salvation and remind yourself of the confidence you have. Read the Bible. Talk to God. Spend time with other believers. Remember and be refreshed. These things God has given us are good and wonderful, but they aren't the foundation of our assurance. But maybe that's not you at all. Maybe you don't feel like you have a misplaced assurance that ebbs and flows with habits and moods. Maybe you feel like you just don't have any assurance at all. If I ask, how is your relationship with God? All you feel is a deep pit of doubt and uncertainty. Am I even saved? I keep sinning, other Christians seem to do it better than me. Am I going to hell? Brother, sister, if that's you, let me remind you of the Jesus we believe in. Instead of looking inward and being consumed by your own shortcomings and anxieties, 
Look to Christ. He suffered and died on your behalf for you and rose from the grave so that through trusting him, you can have confidence in the face of death and darkness and an eternal hope for the future. That is an unshakable, unchanging reality. And that is where our assurance lies. Paul calls it the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. We don't do things to achieve or maintain righteousness. God does. So we shouldn't look to ourselves for assurance of salvation. We should look to him. My wife Diana is nearly five months pregnant at the moment. So brace yourselves for lots of parent-based sermon illustrations in however many sermons I preach this year. Here's the first one. So our baby is at the stage in development now where they can hear what's going on in the outside world, uh, which means we're able to talk and sing to them. They're a very good listener. But here's the question. What are they doing to contribute to or maintain our relationship as father and child? Nothing. There's literally nothing they can do. Regardless, I'm still their dad and they're still my kid. And as they grow and move through life, nothing that happens will change that. Our relationship with God is the same. If, if you've committed yourself to following Jesus, if your trust is in him, then you are saved. That, that's your state of being. He's your dad, you're his kid, and nothing you can do is going to change that. Sure, there are still areas to grow in. Yes, there are still sins that need to be sorted out, but we do that work. We grow and change in the context of and on the foundation of a sure and certain identity as a child of God, loved and saved by grace through faith. Look to Jesus. He is where our salvation comes from, and in him is where our assurance lies. But what if you don't believe at all? If I ask, how's your relationship with God? Maybe you don't have an answer because you just don't believe in God. Maybe you believe something else, or maybe you just don't know what to believe. If that is you, I hope that you can at least see from this passage why we call the story of Jesus the good news. God, creator, ruler of the universe, source of all life and goodness, infinitely powerful, eternal in existence, what could we possibly do to prove ourselves to him? How could we, in our power, do anything to meet his flawless expectations for human life and conduct? In fact, we do the opposite. We live in active opposition to God and his vision for human flourishing. There's nothing we could do for him that he couldn't do himself. And there's nothing we could bring to him that he doesn't already have. So what confidence can we have in ourselves, in our own flesh, to make ourselves right with him? None. And that's okay. Because the good news of Jesus is not about what we do for God. 
It's about what he's done for us. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in Jesus. God in human form who chose to die for us, to pay for our mistakes and rose from death to give us access to eternal life. If that's something you want to learn more about, you can chat to me or one of our other staff, chat to whoever brought you along or fill out a connect form. But that's why we have assurance, a sure and certain confidence in our status as children of God, saved through the sacrifice of Jesus and treasured in him. It's not a confidence that ebbs and flows with our thoughts or behavior. It's not a confidence that evaporates when we feel doubt. It's not a confidence that's based on what we can do. It's a confidence in the work that Christ has done. So we are free to do and indeed should do what Paul reminds us to do in verse one. My brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. Be confident in your assurance and rejoice in the Lord. We're going to do that now by singing together a song that starts with these words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. As we sing together, sing these words as a declaration. Now, sing these words as a prayer. Rejoice in the Lord and remind yourself and each other of the assurance we have in Christ alone, our cornerstone.